I come from a very humble beginning and a small town and my dad was blue collar. I lived and worked with blue collar workers and I think about the people that go out in the field every day. I call them the boots on the ground. It is the fondest term I have. The people that get up at 4 a.m. and commute to a rig site, that work till 9 p.m. or midnight and commute back home. The people who spend the night in worker camps and don't go home to their kids and tuck them in every night. Those are the people that should be celebrated. But when you listen to the news, you don't get that vision of the hero that a lot of these people are. Absolutely. Day in and day out, they're struggling just to make a good living for their family like we are every single day. And I, I think when I listen to the message on the news, that probably hurts me more than And anything. all of those people giving the message and listening to the message are users of the product. Right. Oil and gas makes modern life possible. The energy the world requires today and tomorrow will come from decisions made in the oil field today. Oil and gas will remain the leading source of fuel to power affordable energy that is sustainable for the billions of people that depend on the success of the industry. The oil field is a group of people, companies, technologies, and institutions working towards providing the world with safe, clean, storable, and transportable power. The Oil Field 360 podcast is a 360-degree deep dive into the leaders of the industry, who will provide listeners with a first-hand account of what it takes to build, maintain, and lead the energy business into the future. The Oil Field 360 podcast is brought to you by the following sponsors. Lockton Global Energy and Marine, uncommonly independent. Lockton is the world's largest privately owned insurance broker and risk finance advisor. Lockton's global energy expertise is centered in Houston and represents the largest concentration of energy specialists, clients, and experiential knowledge in the upstream, midstream, and downstream segments of the oil and gas industry. Visit Lockton.com for more information. Upright Digital. Upright Digital specializes in partnering with your business to maximize marketing efficiencies. We have a deep understanding of people, their needs, motivations, behaviors, as well as the technologies that enable brands in many industries to utilize what is available in a changing digital landscape. Find us online at uprightdigital.com. Welcome to the Oldfield 360. I'm David DeRode, one of your hosts, joined by my esteemed co-host, Jim Wickland here. We've got a really special guest, somebody I've uh, known for a number of years and have the privilege to work with, both in uh, a lot of different capacities, different nonprofit groups, etc. It's been a while, but uh, between Jim and myself, we I think we talked her into finally coming on, and obviously COVID... COVID uh, uh, is kind of in the rearview mirror, we hope. And uh, She didn't mention the appearance fee requirement well, to you? I mean, yeah, <laughs> it's pretty steep. We'll, we, she, we're going to have to put that on payment plan. I don't know. <laughs> but how are you this morning, Jim? What are you, what are you thinking? I'm doing great. Uh, still alive. The hands quit hurting. 
And I get to spend the morning with Cindy Taylor. It doesn't get any better than this. Doesn't get any better. Probably one of my most favorite people. I truly mean that. Uh, I've always been Im- impressed by Cindy and everything she does, both inside of old states and outside of old states, and great family and just great person in general. So, that being said, do you want to introduce Cindy? I have known Cindy, God, we're old, for a very long time. Right. Uh, Cindy's on the board of AT&T, the Dallas Fed. She's the CEO of a public oil field service company. She was voted the, the top CFO and CEO in the business several different times. So, I'm thrilled to be able to tell people I know you. I mean, this is... Uh, and she's also a very proud Aggie. I for, yeah, but I forgive yeah. her that. Yeah, yeah, I forgive yeah, her that. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, I remember the time that the Aggie cadet chased the SMU cheerleaders off the field with a saber. I'm still getting over that. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, but Cindy, you're the most one of the most accomplished people any of us know. Um, and and we we're talking before this started. Um, she loves to shoot. She's capable. She plays golf. She's taken me to the World Series. God, I forgot. I'm, I am crazy about this woman. Um, and and she and my wife are two identical people. And so that's another reason she's one of my favorite people. So we're thrilled to have you here. Yeah. Well, you're both so kind. I don't know how to take the compliments, uh, but I appreciate it very much. And we met, I remember you distinctly. I'd started work at Cliff's Drilling Company that's in right the summer of 1992 mm-hmm. and I went to a conference it was called the Dane Ross Rauscher Rauscher conference at the Houstonian mm-hmm. that is the first time we met yep. and I'm going to say it was 1992 1993 yep. you know your career better than I do and uh, I've had great respect and admiration ever since we've become friends more than business associates mm-hmm. David and I go back um probably 10 years does that sound about right and I always say David knows everyone larger than life and he's really really good at what he does so thank you it's a privilege thank you for being here and by the way he didn't really promise me a an appearance fee but I sure thought we were going to dinner drinking some wine I didn't know what this was that's coming available starting this afternoon (laughs) that's definitely in Gemini's lane we do that very well we enjoy that yes and here the dog right now doesn't sound all bad either, so I have that going for me. <laughs> yeah. So how did you, Cliff's Drilling, and now CEO of Oil States, how did Cindy Taylor get here? So my life has been so blessed. I was, uh, I think you know, born and raised in a small town in central Texas, and um, all I cared about was sports, not surprisingly. And um, in my little network in town, I was a good athlete. And uh, I was also a cheerleader, despite my dad forbidding me, because he I, he wanted a girl, but he really wanted to treat me like a boy. And as long as I did sports, we were all good. And um, me being as stubborn as I am, tried out anyway and made the team. And I think I paid my whole way through because he, he didn't like one bit of it. He didn't <laughs> want his little girl being a cheerleader. So, uh, But a small town, and uh, my dad probably went to – a&M for one year, then he uh, deployed into the Merchant Marines in California, never finished college, but he embedded Texas A&M into our lives at an early, early age, and I laugh about it now because he was a um, contractor on military bases, paint crews, and we went all over the state of Texas, and he would take me to Austin and drive me down 6th Street to convince me that this was not the place for me. Back in the day, it was, uh, uh, you know, 
if, a little more liberal, I'll say, than my uh, central Texas <laughs> upbringing. But needless to say, I went to Texas A&M and loved it there, made so many friends. And uh, for me, it was a development that I needed coming from a small town, uh, bridging ultimately to go into work in Houston for a, then a I think we were the big eight back then, accounting firm. And mm -hmm. so my career track is different because instead of coming up through engineering or operations, I came up through business. And I spent probably 10 years there, but all in the energy industry. And it gave me this great background of energy that I, I would have otherwise have never received. And it, as typically the case, I went to work for a client, which was Cliff's Drilling Company. Uh, back then, Mike Cohn, who is another uh, very famous and loved Aggie, uh, was the CEO. Doug Swanson, who is a mentor and a dearest friend, was the CFO I at the time. I forgot about Cohn, yeah. Yeah, Mike goes back. And they had asked me to go to work in 1989. And you, our industry is cyclical. We all know that. And 1989 was not a good year. No, it was not. And it was a smaller company. And I really... I. I love the people there. Randy Newcomer, I sh should say, you probably all know Randy Newcomer yes. Jr. Yes, yep. I, uh, part of my career was around senior before he got brain cancer and passed away. Just a wonderful man. This is a wonderful culture, good company. But I was like, I don't know if they can make payroll the next year uh, at this point in time. <laughs> they continued to like me despite turning them down. And in 1992, I decided to make a change and go into industry, into operations. And a lot of it was instead of just working a little bit more in a, a consulting capacity, if you will, uh, going from client to client, I really wanted to take something, own it, improve it, um, and, you know, take some ownership in a product, I'll call it. And that's really what led me to Cliffs, which was a drilling company. We um, did a lot. Of course, a, a lot of people remember us from our experience that we gained in Venezuela. It's a country I love. And I'm sure we're going to talk a lot about the evolution of this industry. And I saw great things in that country. And then I saw great declines in that country. And that goes back to leadership. And whether it's government leadership, company leadership, it's leadership both good and bad. Venezuela um, used to be the best market outside the U.S. period for the oil and gas industry. And, and people forget that. And, and I mean, it was reported in the back of, of the State Department, uh, and, and still is, the amount of goods and services provided to different countries in Venezuela was at the top forever. It was, and it, the people are just fantastic mm -hmm. in that country. But we were able to bring both people, technology, equipment, and enhance what they could do, that they, they were natural resource rich. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was a great partnership that benefited the people, the country, and it benefited third parties that brought capital into the market. And um, great growth only to go into decline later, as we all know and could uh, talk about. Uh, but it's a great experience for me. And when I went to work at Cliffs, our stock price was $7 a share. And, you know, unadjusted, we exited at $82 a share. We didn't really exit. We hit that peak in uh, 2007, again, a good November of 2007 specifically. Uh, so a tenfold increase in the stock. But along the way, I was I was really young once when I met you. and um, <laughs> We all were, yes. The great thing about uh, Doug 
specifically because Mike didn't stay long as a public company leader. That was not his cup of tea. Mm-hmm. And um, but we had great experience on Wall Street, and it gave me great individual experience and development along the way. You know, having been a consultant and a consulting engineer in the past, it's always interesting because you get to work on so many different things. Mm-hmm. But you look up one day after a couple of years and you think, I have broad experience, but I don't own anything, and there's nothing I can take credit for that I've actually accomplished. So I can appreciate that move. That's yeah. that's serious. Yeah. Well, of course, coming out of college, when you go a business route, it's almost the presumption that your ultimate goal is to become a partner in a big now a big four firm was in a big eight firm, big six, whatever. And you go along that continuum and then you realize and you look at the life and say, you know what, I want something different yeah. than that. And that's really what prompted the, the change for me and it, I, it was a great decision on many fronts. And the transition from CFO, a numbers person, to CEO, I mean a lot of people look at these and say, oh well they're kind of interchangeable and they're both C-suite. They're not. It is, it is a dramatic different skill set in the day-to-day job. You, you obviously have proven capable of both. But tell us about the transition from going from a CFO to a CEO. Well, and I'll, I'll start by, we're all products of the experiences that we've gained, mm-hmm. right? And none of us have a unique skill set day one. And I credit so many people for expanding that opportunity. I go back to the best thing we can do is create opportunities for other people to grow personally and professionally. And so I go back to, I'll talk about Doug a lot because he was early in my career development, you know, young 30s, we're on Wall Street and he doesn't hesitate to put me in front of the camera, in front of the microphone and it's sink or swim to some degree, but it was great (laughs) experience and the same thing you know, I remember, of course, it, it was so difficult commit, commuting back and forth to Venezuela, but it didn't matter that I was a female or I was young. It didn't matter that I was seven or eight months pregnant. I was doing it. You do it, yeah. And, and that's good and bad. There's good and bad about that, but I was exposed very early. And I'll never forget so many of the operations team, uh, whether wherever we were, were stunned because I would be in the shop, on the floor, see it, touch it, feel the, we've got to understand the business. Yep. And you can't be a pure financial person, sit in the office and not make a connection to your people and not understand what it is technically that you're doing every day, well, right? Well, you, 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 you can, and I've known CFOs who have done that. They weren't very good at their job. <laughs> no, and they I, didn't go anywhere from there. So, I, again, I go back. I think I was just exposed to something that I didn't know before. And I also had uh, great confidence early on with people saying, you know, you, you have natural leadership skills, natural. And, and I always look at life and say, what, are, what do I do really well? And where are your gaps? And you ought to focus on the gaps. Don't sit in the office and do the things that you do really well right. repetitively over and over, but go with the things you're less comfortable with and make sure you develop that skill set, right? Yeah, it's critically important. But I laugh, at, I'll tell you that stories. I go back to Doug and uh, there's been so many times that I, you know, I flew in helicopters from Eastern Venezuela to Trinidad that weren't the best maintained. You know, we talk about you hear storms on Lake Maracaibo, and you're like, it's a lake. 
what are we talking about? Till you get caught in one. Yeah, I was gonna and say. you've got waves coming over the boat and you don't know you're like there's no lights on this lake, there's no security, no three hours getting off that lake one night and you're like Okay, this was not comfortable. And, uh, you know, a jack-up rig and dry dock fully extended on the legs. Our, our crane basket going from the lake to the rig floor. And Doug is like, I was scared to death. I didn't want to do it. But Cindy's doing it. I didn't have a choice, right? <laughs> he literally said that. Congratulations. Okay, I have a question. Your sports background and your athletic background, how has that served you or if it if it has in your career um well first of all it's, you're competitive it is personally professionally it's part of who you are and um but i do think that it's and i don't like to say easier to connect uh with men but our our industry has been male dominated for years yeah and it is easier to connect if you in in you any walk of life make a connection develop some mutual conversation area of interest and mine could be sports it yes it could be golf it could be hunting it could be tennis it could be fishing and you you all of a sudden get a conversation there whereas sure. if you're two totally different people sometimes it's a bit of a struggle to make that connection and and go a little bit deeper in terms of a relationship and so i do think it helped although i don't think about it that way i just did what i like to do well that combined with being on the shop floor that speaks volumes oh yeah absolutely so i, I do want you to talk a little bit about because you worked with uh le and that team tell us a little bit about that so i'll go back to the exit of um kind of my period with cliffs we had three different offers three different companies because we had been on a high growth successful track record we were small cap and easier to acquire in a different part of the market and uh, it was late i got to get my dates right 19 i told you the industry cycle peak then was november of 2007 and so i think it took effect december of 2008 where we merged with r&b falcon mm -hmm. at the time and uh, Steve Webster is a longtime industry icon, quite frankly, Solid and a lot of the relationships. Yeah, yeah <laughs> and a lot of the relationships we made were actually through him. And that was I'm maybe taking you back to a time you don't remember, but Reading and Bates and Falcon had oh, yeah. just come together, and you still had kind of two co-leaders, co-CEOs, but you also had the large, high-end offshore drilling rigs and you had more of the shallow water falcon jack stuff. up flight falcon cliffs yeah all coming together and there was even a thought at one time that doug might be the successor ceo mm -hmm. and as it all turned out the as cycles hit and cycles do some of the fi falcon rigs had overruns if you'll recall mm -hmm. on their upgrades and a lot of things happened at the end of the day and neither doug nor steve webster stayed through the ultimate transition and integration i did and i basically fully integrated cliffs into the new company shut down our downtown office uh, but quickly realized I, everything I had done and gained in the culture had changed yeah. 
and I don't want to be negative about anybody or any place. I don't mean that at all. It's just the culture was different. Very different. And my, you, you realize it's not the title, it's not the pay, it's what you do every day, who you do it with, and the level of involvement that you have in decision making. And mine had clearly eroded. And I was just miserable because I was no longer in, in that leadership team that I thought I had had before. And sure. I just didn't enjoy going to work every day anymore. And I, I distinctly, and you know, I'm not, a, I'm not an emotional person, but I drove up to that office and I almost burst into tears and I thought, I'm not doing this another minute, not another day. So what do you do? I called <laughs> Doug. And I told him, I'm not doing this another minute for another day. And he said, calm down, catch your breath. And I'd already had job offers. Uh, Matt Rawls is a good friend. Bob Rose. Again, I'm going to mention some names from the past here. Yeah, yeah, and um, Doug gave me really sage advice that said, you're making an emotional decision right now. Step back a minute. And he, his advice was, this is more of a parallel change move. And two, Matt's there. And he's really good at what he does, and he is, Matt Rawls. Mm-hmm. And um, he said, I don't know if this goes anywhere, but I want you to talk to Ellie Simmons. This is where I'm going with this conversation. And I did. And Ellie, and I also have raised three amazing young men in my life, and they're all within five years of each other. And this is in the heart of trying to run a career, raise a family. I was talking to Nikki earlier, <laughs> long commute. And I said, can you just give, I've never, I have worked since basically I was 12 years old. I've never taken more than a week vacation. I really wanted six months off. And he's like, well, understand that. I need you in two weeks. And so <laughs> the rest is history. And, but I'll also tell you, he's smart. This was August of 99. Okay. The depths, again, of another cycle, yep. perfect time for private equity to be thinking about deploying growth capital yes. and taking action. Yep. And so L.E. was just saying what's best for his company and best for his firm. And do you want to be part of it? And I did want to be part of it. And again, I go back to the blessings in life because, yet again, this is another step of getting private equity experience that I hadn't had before. And it helped me develop as a person, mm-hmm. as a leader, as a deployer of capital going forward. And there's some of the smartest, brightest people in this industry have focused private equity on strictly energy services over their whole lifetimes and livelihoods. And it was just a great move for me. And importantly, not only the experience I gained, but we took four portfolio companies out of their fund three and fund four, merged them and took them public into what Oil States is today. And Doug and I rejoined forces. Again, relationships are huge in this industry. Yes, ma'am. And took the company public in February of 2001. And so here we are two decades later and uh, still living another day, living another dream. That's awesome. I, re- I remember the IPO. Ellie took me to lunch and said, will you participate? And I said, Ellie, I, I can't. You're putting several different companies that have nothing in common together to be big enough to take public. But I'll, I'll look and see how the management team works, and I'll see about picking up coverage later. And it took me two months, and I picked up coverage. Well, and we appreciate that. And 
uh, oil states had a good run, but I remember uh, obviously the IPO, it was grueling. Mm -hmm. And for a lot of private companies that are out there, I, I even go back and I told SCF, here's what I would do differently the next <laughs> time. But it was rough for all the reasons you yep. talk about. And not only were four businesses coming together, we they were not legally combined. Right. So it's kind of like putting your toe in the water and seeing if there's a reception there, yep. but you had the ability to back out. Well, Wall Street saw that, obviously, and, yep. and they're like, what's the level of commitment here? Are there true synergies? Blah, blah, blah. But I go, I have to think back. Um, our IPO price was nine. And at one point, I think our stock hit 140, maybe. So great that, run. That, I would almost consider that a success. Great yeah. run. Uh, but it wasn't easy. And um, I could, you know, I always say the best relationships you make are the ones you make in the trenches. Absolutely. And I'll no comment doubt. about Bradley Dotson. The amount of work we put in was ungodly um, for many unique reasons that we don't even need to get in here today. And I remember, I think we were in a car with a driver from Boston to New York to get ready to price. And it was literally. Ellie saying, do, do we want to do this? And I was to the point and saying, no. Uh, the reception would have been really – and it was also the worst IPO market in it was, history. It was. a uh, terrible market. That was a terrible market. And so, anyway, it, it turned out to be a fantastic thing. Mm -hmm. uh, SCF did take a haircut on the IPO for the reasons we just talked about. But nonetheless, they showed great character and commitment Agreed. to getting it done. And they were patient about exiting their position, which really paid off in the long run. I, I don't know how it ended up in their total portfolio, but there was a time uh, it was incredibly rewarding for the SCF group as well. Yeah. yeah. So talk to us about where Oil States is today, the challenges and opportunities and your view of the world. Well, you know, the end of the day, we are in a cyclical industry, and sure. you have to accept that, and I say embrace that. And we've gone through so many cycles. There, I think, between Jim and Marshall, we've counted them in the past. There's a lot, and at least eight. Um, <laughs> at least eight. And of course, we can top off global financial crisis in 07, 08, which was an exacerbated cycle but nothing compared to COVID. So we've lived through a lot as a management team. We've lived through a lot as an industry. And there's a lot of things that transpire through that that make you stronger. And I think mm -hmm. management teams today in this industry are some of the best anywhere. And, you know, I've told other companies that might have a, a different, I just like, whether it was 07, 08 or COVID even worse, when you lose 80% of the rig count in about 90 days in the United States, it's a little slower to disappear, but you lost about 50%, and this is during COVID. Right. That's revenue, people. No and industry they, has ever seen a quarterly drop ever in their business like we did. We, 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 look, we researched it. No right. industry, quarter to quarter, has ever seen a drop in revenue that extreme. And, and I would add the comment, too, we didn't have the safety net that many companies were afforded during COVID. And you say, what do you mean by that? I'm on the Federal Reserve Board. I know what all the options were between PPP loans, Main Street lending programs. So you were either too big, right. you couldn't do a PPP loan to help sustain your people 
and your workforce during this time. But we also want investment grade, so we weren't going to qualify on the backside. So it just meant you got to survive. You got to right. try to make it to the other side through this cycle. And uh, that's what we did, but you learn a lot. Hard decisions. Hard, difficult decisions during periods like this. And you learn how to manage a company through peaks and valleys. And, you know, again, I go back to the peak stock price. And we did what was the right thing at the time, spun off the accommodations business, largely because it had really moved away from core energy services, particularly with the acquisition we made in the Australian mining sector. Mm -hmm. Uh, We decided to do that on our own, even though activists came in later Mm -hmm. and were trying to force our hand towards it. It was already a decision we had decided to do. As Jim will tell you, the industry never liked our Sooner business. It was a great business. It -hmm. just was very cyclical from the standpoint of an investor, uh, high revenue, low margin, but it's a great ROIC business. I'm a, I'm a business purist here, and if you make ROIC every day, through cycle, good and bad, you it's win. a good business. It's a, it's good, a good business. business. But that You're, doesn't mean Wall you Street mo- will credit you for it. You couldn't model it with all the variables that we normally use for oil field. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, I, I would I totally agree with you. I mean, the, the resiliency – this this industry has demonstrated those who are still standing and and um, through the ups and downs, particularly through COVID, and and then also too, I think the um, the pressure that's being put on us by our lawmakers, um, you know, from a perspective of, of I would say a lot of ignorance, quite frankly, about mm-hmm. how important the industry is to not only our economy but the global economy and. Uh, the fact that we do have a growing global population and and demand will be going up and it's just been impressive to see and I'm fortunate to to know you and get to work with you guys and and see it but uh, I think you know it's not hard to do it's kind of not worth doing although some people we were talking earlier uh, every now and then you just wish you could catch your breath but uh, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger I guess so it's well, been strong as hell by now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Amen to that. But um, given uh, given what's going on in the marketplace and and where commodity prices are, uh, how do you how do you see that playing out for the industry long term? Do you think we'll continue to maintain some discipline, or do you think honky tonk amnesia will set in sooner or later? And I actually think that uh, global leaders in this industry have concluded, and I think we know the answer, we need to be investing more capital globally, not just in the United States. Sure. And so I think that needs to happen. It's interesting that we're having this conversation just after Continental has made this announcement, Harold Hamm and family to go private. And one will almost say, who can blame them? Because they're not really getting credit in the marketplace. I think the analyst I've read suggests they're trading about three, 3.7 times cash flow mm-hmm. at a discount to many other even poorly valued mm-hmm. ENP companies in the space. And so it's, it seems to me a very smart move. But it's someone that has a history in this business that understands it and understands the need for energy, which is critical to not only our economy, but the global economy. But we're going to need to spend trillions of dollars as an industry to sustain it over the next horizon, whatever that is. And we'll talk about energy transition, I'm sure. 
but we know and we believe as an industry it's long time coming and I worry about all of the political rhetoric that is out there because it's harmful it's very harmful it's harmful to our industry it's harmful to the people that work in it it's harmful to the people that want to invest in it that want to lend to it Mm. and it is an essential business and I've always said you should never kill an essential business until you have a ready replacement that is affordable and reliable we do not and up and running and up and ready business that is ready to go and we do not and so we are creating I I don't ever want to use the word crisis because I'm a glass half full person that says we will get through this we'll manage through this but it's worrisome to me that gasoline at the pump it's now averaging five dollars or more a gallon because the average consumer who lives 50 percent some say 70 percent live paycheck to paycheck i hope it's more like 50 but that's half the population in the united states that is going to have a challenge and they're going to have to make decisions do i fill up the gas tank today do i pay my cell phone bill which is also becoming essential Mm -hmm. Um, do i pay my rent what about the food on the table? And we can get on the whole topic of inflation sure. uh, along the way. But it is worrisome to me that we've gotten ourselves into this position. And it I don't want to necessarily blame Russia-Ukraine war, blame COVID. We, it's easy to do. Right. Uh, but I think it's a little more systemic that we have been under-investing in this industry now for o- over a decade. And as you know, you can't just turn on the light switch and suddenly get two to five million barrels a day more production in short order. Now, the worrisome part of me is how much demand destruction are we going to get at this particular price level? And and Jim, I know you wrote, I still read all your stuff, by the way, it comes out (laughs) Sunday afternoon. And I think you made the comment that it might be pain in the short run for some ENPs, but a happier price probably for the long term is $85 mm-hmm. a barrel. Yep. I think you said that Even in the last agrees. 10 days or so. And yeah. I, I also agree with that because it, you've got the supply demand. Right now we are uh, struggling with supply. Mm-hmm. And the only way to get a short-term fix is destroy demand. And that may be where we're headed if we can't address this just a little bit quicker. But... I go back to a lot of the privates that we work for in the Permian and elsewhere have been investing capital. They're mm-hmm. not necessarily answering to shareholder pressures every day or regulatory pressures every day from ESG and other things. And they've been growing their business, investing and making great profits. And whether Continental is the next one in line to basically say, I'm going to focus on the business and do what I think is right as a sole owner as opposed to a you know a Wall Street owner but even Wall Street a lot of experienced investors recognize that you need to support this industry but all that trickles down we are manufacturing and services and if they can't get access to capital nor can we sure well but I you, think but you made one point that I love and you'll read it again hopefully made more shortly. than well, one this was a huge one <laughs> is that any business, if it makes a return, is a good business. Right. Okay. But the E&P industry went 10 years not making a positive return. And so my issue is while we've underinvested in the industry, 
We outspent cash flow seven of the last 10 years and lost hundreds of billions of dollars of value. And so I actually think that the losses the oil industry has taken over the last 10 years has subsidized the gasoline price. Absolutely. And we are now just seeing the results of that. The pendulum has swung from negative 37 to 120. It's going to swing back. But if the oil industry no longer subsidizes oil and gas like we've done for a decade, we're not going to go back to the oil prices, gasoline prices of a year ago anyway. We can come off $5, and I fully expect we will at some point. But, uh, you know, the, 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 the point is for the E&P industry is they have to stay profitable now because that's what the Wall Street owners demand. And so as long as the E&P industry, your point, can generate positive returns, we will have a great business. Well, I think you, you brought up energy and transition, and, and I, I've kind of changed my thought perspective on that over the last – call it six six to eight months and that we need to be talking about the concept of energy expansion which i think is more inclusive versus energy and transition which is exclusive in a way we have a you know we have a growing population globally therefore we're gonna have global demand we've got this increased thirst for electrification and people sadly don't really understand where electricity comes from and it just means more consumption of natural resources more consumption of of steady reliable energy i thought it was interesting that some of the tech companies that are largely um, uh, have big data centers in the midwest were pushing back against you know warren buffett's investment in this massive wind farm to provide you know renewable energy and uh, their pushback was against the reliability of that energy that they need for this mm-hmm. massive uh, business they run yeah. and the consumption of, of energy that they have. So it's it's just, uh, I think, fundamentally, I step back and look at things with 30,000-foot views sometimes, and we don't really have an economic problem. We don't really have an environmental problem. We've got an education problem. And if we can, if we can solve the basic education and, and bring back the idea of critical thinking and, and helping people understand what appear to be complex topics and, and boil them down uh, into you know, bits and pieces of information they can understand, I think, I think that would go a long way. But, of course... That's not a light, light switch deal, and I think there's been movement against that for, gosh, probably 30 or 40 years, despite what people might might say. But uh, there, there's got to be a recognition, and unfortunately I think <clears throat> only pain is going to bring recognition. It's kind of nice to see that oil and gas is kind of cool again and people are actually coming back into the market. And, you know, I think Chris Wright uh, posted something on LinkedIn today. He said, man – it's nice to have people actually calling me, wanting to come talk to me in Denver these days. <laughs> yeah, I love and, Chris uh, Wright. Yeah, good man. Good He's been leader. a great spokesman for the industry. He has been. You know, I'm going to tie together both things that you just said, and um, I read. I'm a student of this industry still, and there was an article written that I I actually quoted on a um, joint meeting of the Dallas Minneapolis Fed on this topic on energy and its impact on inflation. And to your point, because of the losses incurred over the last 10 years, right now 
the Biden administration and media generally is focused on the profits and cash flow that the ENP industry is making with ridiculous conversations about windfall profits tax and the like. I won't go there. However, this article said, and I think the collective ENP industry is going to generate I won't get the number right, like $170 billion of free cash flow this year. That only recovers 60% of the capital destroyed in the last decade. So we're not even to neutral yet on free cash flow. So don't talk about windfall profits tax. Agreed, agreed. We can go there. But I want to link that concept of to be a sustainable industry and a sustainable business, you have to generate not only free cash flow, but ROIC. Yes. And then let's go back to this conversation of a migration towards a broader energy base and elements of content to that. And I saw another article that talks about if we could only measure energy ROIC per, whether it's gallon produced or kilowatt produced, meaning let's focus our attention on the the most productive cleanest molecule produced mm-hmm. and do a fair assessment and that's the only way you generate a long-range energy plan I, jamie diamond came up i had to go I, I still think i'm young and i'm like i don't know what the marshall plan is but what what are we talking about what it really is talking about let's be smarter and develop a long-range energy plan as a country. But to do that, you got to look at the cost of energy produced and the reliability of that energy produced and do a heads-up analysis. Now, you're somewhere along the way, you've got to say there is an environmental element here. Mm-hmm. It is my hope that we can clean up our own industry sufficiently to be competitive over the long term rather than talking about whether my industry goes into non-existence by 2030 2040 or 2050 because i don't believe that and i also believe that we are the industry that will affect the transition i go back to you know our exposure right now it's like okay if you want to electrify the world you've got to have battery technology and you've got to have affordable battery technology plenty of people have gone through all the steps is it mark mills i think he does a great job all the elements you need to get to growth much less the the, up into the right growth that we're talking about we're looking at um, deep water basins offshore to recover minerals and metals needed and we've got deep water riser systems already developed to do that Mm -hmm. wind you know we don't talk about um shallow wind these are fixed platforms we've been doing for six decades it's that's not complicated stuff we're trying to invest in deeper water affordable floating alternatives but do you really want to invest in a SPAC with no content no engineering experience no capital equipment no manufacturing roof count roof line to do that or do you want to go to our industry who has done this for decades Mm -hmm. and draw on that experience as you affect transitional opportunities it only makes sense to do the latter I think it's pretty interesting when you have somebody a visionary and a smart guy like Elon Musk, I don't necessarily agree with everything that he's done, but you got to give the guy credit for what he's done and is doing. But he even recognizes the um, uh, the the 
engineering prowess, the, the science and, and technology that, that exists in the oil and gas industry. When we had, you know, Robert Eifler on here the other day, deep water drilling, I mean, deep water drilling, ultra deep water drilling, that's as complicated, not more complicated than the space program. Absolutely. And, um, you know, I can't think of a better industry when you think about all the different aspects of everything that goes into our business. And I, I think also to point out the continuous improvement that continues to happen, regardless of whether there's um, regulator pushback or uh, activist pushback about this, that, and the other, we, we kind of generally go that way seeking efficiency and continuous improvement anyways and along the way you usually have good social outcomes and you do have a good environmental stewardship and as Jeff Miller said he said it's hard to find anybody in this business that doesn't enjoy the outdoors Mm -hmm. and appreciate the outdoors and and so you know part of this podcast is to kind of help get that message out there that we're not evil that we're people that we want to do the right thing And, and quite frankly are really important because the modern life you've grown accustomed to and the modern life that people that have not experienced it want now thanks to wi-fi uh you know in countries that may not have infrastructure but they've got they've got cell phones and everything else they see the rest of the world and they want that and all all demand is going to do is continue to increase and i don't think the perfect solution exists nor will it exist for quite a while and uh you know nuclear can't necessarily be owned by private industry and and because of the potential perils associated with uh that technology falling in the wrong hands but uh you know i'm pretty proud of the oil and gas industry what it's done and how uh ubiquitous it is in our life that i think a lot of people take for granted but there's always room for improvement and when i think of sustainability it's like to your point cindy how do you build a business that sustains through the ups and downs, provides, you know, uh, employment to people and, and provides what ultimately makes this world go around, whether it's pharmaceuticals or food or, you know, you really got to have a better understanding. And unfortunately, uh, a lot of folks don't. So um, with all that being said, I think, <clears throat> I think, you mentioned your deep water riser system, which is pretty cool. And, and I think for people that are listening, we're essentially basically creating a big, long handle on top of a Hoover vacuum that's basically sweeping these nodules off the ocean floor and, and uh, you know, bringing ma- uh, lithium and manganese and, and some other interesting materials out of, the, out of that. But uh, We've been talking what, about it for a couple of decades, and now we're actually starting to see it, it on, on the nearer horizon. You know, I remember one of the hardest things uh, you do is develop strategic plans initially. And what I mean by that, when we took a company, our company public, we were a combination of four companies that have wildly different drivers and exposures from the Canadian oil sands to potentially LNG, uh, shell-based activity, deep water, you name it. And so I become a student of strategic plans and what you need it's it's not enough i got so tired of swot analysis which are markups from the prior year what are you good at what are you not good at but more where do you want to be as a company both geographically technically but not only that don't set your sights and we did the made sure we did a 
clean whiteboard every five years because our industry changes. Right. Demand and supply environments, everything changes. And the best thing I did is actually a UT professor that wrote it, believe it or not. And, but it's one of the best things because it's like not enough to set a five-year target without looking at all the steps you've got to take along that pathway from a human resource standpoint, a systems standpoint, in-country infrastructure when you're operating globally. But I'm, I'm connecting that to what you just said. We kind of look at we want reliable, affordable energy, blah, blah, blah. How are you going to get there? Right. And it's like, okay, we want to electrify the world by what every day. Well, what are the steps? What are the requirements? What are the supply chain issues you're going to face along the way? And we're seeing that now. How do we have a shortage of diapers? How do we know not know that 90% of penicillin was manufactured in China? Yeah. How do we not know some of these things? Because you really haven't looked at all of the critical steps necessary to get to your long-range goal. And if we could do anything as a country, that's what we need to do mm-hmm. um, to be successful, in my mind. And, and so, in the election cycle, and in the election cycle, but uh, I think it's up to le- corporate leaders and other industry civic leaders to be that's better, to step up and be better. Yeah, one of the things I was talking with Toby Rice about the other day um, is. You know, what I'd love to see is some of the allied industry leadership truly come together with the energy industry leadership and start getting the story right. Because when you think about John Deere or Caterpillar or AT&T or Apple or any of these organizations, they have to have um, a strong energy industry and they've got to have reliability and they've got to have some cost stability otherwise they're passing those costs on the consumers which you know again you the secondary tertiary uh impacts and the unintended consequences that people don't think about but i I, when we talk about responsive corporate responsibility and all this stuff i it's something i think um we ought to pursue uh to to um i think make an impact it shouldn't be just the energies energy industry's responsibility I think some other um, uh, business leaders need to get in into the mix because it does does impact them as much as it impacts us, whether they whether they like that or not. I think but, that that lately the idea that ideology is running head on into practicality, reality, just said, and reality practicality always wins. Yeah. That it's making it easier for those allied industries to jump on board because nobody wants to be best friends with the pariah mm-hmm. and that's what we've been right and nobody wants yeah let's let's all hang out with bob because he's you know so there's got to be some some room for them to be able to jump in and not damage their own corporate situations but i think we may be getting there i think we may be and unfortunately though our industry is uh, oftentimes the villains in yeah. time like this not not the savior in terms of providing affordable, reliable energy. And and I think part of the media and politics are to blame for that. Um, And you talk about allied industries, that sounds good, uh, but whether it's chemical industry, whether it's airlines, oftentimes it becomes more, we 
we become the thorn in their side when energy prices get too high, as opposed to this concept of working together for a better long-range solution for the country. I, I hope we can get to that point someday, but um, I, I just don't know. Uh, right now, and I, a point you made, Toby Rice is a huge vocal advocate for the industry, but particularly for natural gas. If nothing else from this podcast, know that actually in this country, despite population growth, despite great economic growth, we have reduced greenhouse gas emissions. Mm -hmm. The reason for that is natural gas that has basically supplanted coal, Mm -hmm. which is a dirtier burning fuel from a GHG perspective. But that message doesn't get out. Mm-hmm. That nat- and, and I get we need to control methane releases. And uh, there have been many people in our past that have commented about this is the next big thing. But we're capable of doing that. That's right. We are capable of managing that. And we ought to be touting, just like Toby does, the benefits of natural gas. But I just don't, I think it gets lost in the conversation. The other thing from wearing my Fed hat, this is back when I was on the Houston branch of the Dallas Fed, we did some studies uh, about the substitution effects, but it was not only from a environmental standpoint, a cost standpoint. You know, there, there was a time, if you have unfettered drilling and completion of natural gas, I think it could be today, a very cheap, high ROIC fuel that has subsidized the cost of all the alternative investments, particularly wind, over the last decade. The reason the consumer has had a flat price is because cheap natural gas has been in the mix compensating for higher cost alternative investment. But the consumer doesn't get that message. Mm -hmm. And if nothing else, I hope this podcast is listened to by someone that will recognize the benefits and the merits of some of the things that have occurred in this industry. Excellent point. So one of the things we usually like to ask our guests when they come on is uh, any advice or wisdom they might would have wanted to share with their younger self or anybody else that's in the business or thinking about getting in the business, any any advice or, or uh or thoughts that that uh, you'd like to share or pass along? Well, yeah, this might take a long time. But, um, so I, 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 everything's going to come from my perspective. And um, I do things I love, I'm passionate about. I go back to Texas A&M a lot. It's athletics and it's student development, mentoring. It's anything along the line. But I think the major message is this is a great industry. It's not a dirty industry. It's not a dying industry. Uh, But honestly, it's been hard for people to see that, again, with the news and kind of the political discourse that goes on on a daily basis. It's one of the things I'm most concerned about is that people wake up someday and just say, it's either a dirty industry or it's a dying industry. Therefore, it's not an industry I want to commit my time and talent to. And we need talent from the younger generation. And it's, um, I think, great experience from a technical perspective, an operational perspective, a leadership perspective, and just managing businesses. I think there's some great opportunities there. 
I'll speak from the standpoint of a female. Uh, we, I always want more women to enjoy this industry as I have. It's been fantastic for me. And I think there's great opportunities there as well if you choose to work, whether that's even a technical uh, field, whether it's business, HR, whatever. Right. I think there's some great opportunities there. And uh, we need talent in this industry. We need this industry uh, to be successful as a country. And so it's just a, a calling, I think, to try to get people back into the fold. And I have, I've told you, three boys of my own, two of which were with uh, industry uh, peers, one on the ENP side, one on the manufacturing and service side. I take great pride to, in what, who they are as human beings and what they've done. They both worked in the industry and now they don't because relationships and, and people that they've come in contact in have drawn them away from our industry. And I hate that uh, mm -hmm. because they're not alone uh, yep. in exiting this industry, but it's hard to see that great future kind of if you just listen to the rhetoric of the day. Agreed. Um, but I, you know, I entered, I, I come from a very humble beginning and a small town and my dad was blue collar. I lived and worked with blue collar workers and I think about the people that go out in the field every day. I call them the boots on the ground. It is the fondest term I have. The people that get up at 4 a.m. and commute to a rig site, yeah. that work till 9 p.m. or midnight and commute back home. The people who spend the night in worker camps and don't go home to their kids and tuck them in every night. Those are the people that should be celebrated. But when you listen to the news, you don't get that vision of the hero that a lot of these people are Absolutely. day in and day out. They're struggling just to make a, a good living for their family like we are every single day. And I, I think when I listen to the message on the news, that probably hurts me more than and anything. all of those people giving the message and listening to the message are users of the product. Right. Yeah. So the yeah, I, was, amazing. I was on location, uh, Pioneer location with uh, uh, ProPetro the other day taking some very young folks out to the field because again i'm a big believer and you can't can't really talk to people about risk if you don't understand it and to your point if you don't touch it and feel it and smell it all that good stuff but there is a, a supervisor out there he'd been 35 years in, in the oil field and you know he's he's kind of a rolling stone but he's just one of those solid guys that you're talking about and 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 i said so what what keeps you what keeps you going in this business? I had a I had a feeling what his response would be, but it it it's it's the same reason I I love the industry so much. And he said, man, it's all about the people. He said, you know, these Amazon they go work at Amazon and you know eight to five and the air conditioning and this that and the other and maybe make better pay or whatever. But he said, you know, it's it's the people that bring me back to this business. And he said, I don't just work with anybody because it it is it can be a dangerous business if you don't have discipline and process and. Uh, but he said it's it's the people. And he said I I get up for these people. I work with these people. You know they're my family. And, and he said that's that's really important to me. He said I love I love the I love the fact that it's tough. And uh, he said I'm proud of that. And you know <clears throat> I think um, to your point, Cindy, 
more and more people should talk about that because I, I think you know it's one thing to have our our combat veterans and our first responders which are incredibly important and to me are our heroes not necessarily the actors and actresses that we try to make these folks out to be but but also the folks that are getting out and doing the thankless jobs largely the unknown jobs and uh, the the um, being away from their families and and being in oftentimes harsh environments uh, whether it be hot or cold so um so you got any any words of wisdom or advice you might want to give somebody besides paying attention to the people anything uh well uh, you know i i would say and uh probably mark papa who was our chairman for many many years on our board uh follow the macro and the macro is both supply and demand, and, and you have to understand the macro to anticipate what's going to come next, and because it comes quickly. And whether that is shortage of supply, where is it, where's your lowest cost basin to invest in, how do you position the assets you have, the people you have to take advantage of the macro, because we are a commodity business. We're going to be driven by it. The harder thing is the demand side, particularly in this post-COVID world we're still dealing massive shortages of everything Mm -hmm. we still have house shortages auto shortages uh you know you can go energy shortages and so are they what do the next two years look like and what is the area we should be focused on and i always say the middle east saudi shell in the u.s are the shortest cycle investments you can make i.e first revenue produced in shorter order So that's where we ought to be deploying capital. Um, Our government should be encouraging access and the deployment of capital right now if you really want prices to come down. You know, we were talking about this the other day. When you think about the what COVID has done structurally to to our economy, the way we do things and and the fact that there are now more people at home, some of which are working at home. Uh, some of these people used to live in population dense cities that have now spread out where they used to have you know mass transportation that they depended on didn't even own a car suddenly they go get a car suddenly they go move out somewhere either buy something or build something the energy consumption where historically has not been is increased because people are at home the AC is running when historically they might have turned it off or or you know increase the temperature and it's it's been interesting just watching if all things stay equal just the energy demand or the demand for a lot of resources go up despite um what what people may think otherwise and i and i think when you when you bolt on the increased population through um legal and illegal immigration and um and then just natural population growth it's it's going to be interesting interesting to see how we as an industry respond i just hope we hold our discipline and i think if we can bring the inflation under control to your point earlier if we can stay in that 70 90 dollar barrel range for a while and people don't get honky-tonk amnesia and and start slicing each other's throats that's good for everybody but we'll see what happens you know i talked about the macro on supply demand i've I should also add demographics and because that's huge in our industry right. it will drive demand and you you probably know the numbers better than I do but if you look at 
U.S. per capita demand for energy, and then you look at China and India, it is stunning. It is stunning. It is stunning. And they all want to be in our middle class. That's right. And I I think the U.S. consumes on a per capita or per individual basis 10 times what China does, five times roughly what India does. So do you really think that they do not aspire to a similar quality of life that we enjoy in the United States. That's energy demand. Hmm. It's quality of, of life provided by energy. It, right. Period. And, and everything that we've enjoyed ha- has improved because of affordable, reliable energy. And we take it for granted in this country. But other countries who are on the development curve do not take it for granted. Yep. And I just think that's going to spell into longer-term demand. But demographic trends are very, very important. I would have have to say the one thing that concerns me a lot is right now worker participation in this country is at a five-decade low. Mm -hmm. You mentioned COVID. Something happened in COVID that I don't think any of us fully understand that you just say, where did the workers go? Is this early retirement? Are these two income-earning households that are suddenly saying, I don't enjoy the rat race. Mm-hmm. I'm going to live in that small town. One of us is going to work remotely. I'm going to focus on the kids. I'm pulling them out of public schools because of everything that is going on in our public. I don't know the answer. Nobody can put their hands on the answer. But worker participation is troubling. Hmm. Uh, we need workers in this country to be the most successful and the most productive that we can be. It's real, and I just think you gave a very good, you know, explanation of what's happening. What's happening? Uh, the other thing that is very personal to me is the um, mental impact that COVID has had on people, and I know three families and one son really really well that committed suicide through all this Mm -hmm. three myself this is real and you know i always say books will be written about what we did right and what we didn't do right but mental health has to be addressed because i've seen bright aspiring talented young individuals they're taking their life right now yeah, it's uh, it's a it's a real issue, and it's not getting the attention it deserves. Not at um, all. Not to be a downer towards. No, the no. You, I think I you've given us a lot to think about, and yeah. our listeners, and I, we really appreciate you coming uh, and joining Jim and I. And it's always great to see you and and uh, sharing your story and and sharing some advice and thoughts. I know our, our listeners will appreciate it, and I can't wait to hear hear what you hear from people it's always fun when folks we have on they you know a few weeks after the podcast has been out the amount of people that reach out to them and you know are listening that will bases. be fun it will yeah. be that will it'll be, be interesting to see what they say the they'll most say Cindy was great jim was better david eh, not so much so <laughs> the most <laughs> recent one i listened to was patty melcher oh yeah hey, there's an scf connection there and uh, I've known her from afar for years but there's things I learned about her career and her personal life that I didn't know about until I listened to the podcast she's a neat lady you will have a lot of people listening to this one uh, and the same for you well good thank you again thanks Cindy thank you
Locked in Global Energy and Marine, uncommonly independent. Lockton is the world's largest privately owned insurance broker and risk finance advisor. Lockton's global energy expertise is centered in Houston and represents the largest concentration of energy specialists, clients, and experiential knowledge in the upstream, midstream, and downstream segments of the oil and gas industry. Visit lockedin.com for more information. Upright Digital. Upright Digital specializes in partnering with your business to maximize marketing efficiencies. We have a deep understanding of people, their needs, motivations, behaviors, as well as the technologies that enable brands in many industries to utilize what is available in a changing digital landscape. Find us online at uprightdigital.com.